hearts and our throats, let's open the Bible and maybe as a transition I'll tell you a, a summer story that sort of has kicked off our summer. Um, with the warm weather, we are outside a lot in our household. You know we've got a family of eight with six little buggers that run around our house and um, beautify it every single day. And uh, you know, lately we've been out on the trampoline, that's sort of our Alaskan swimming pool and we jump around on that. So. We were doing that, and, uh, and Judy uh, was, I coerced her into giving us haircuts, and so she'll get out the shearers sometimes and, and sit on the back porch deck and, and just line us up and, and sort of buzz us through, and you know, I got my haircut first, and I was back over on the trampoline, and so Judy calls Carson. If you know Carson, he's our four-year-old, one of our twins, and he's rough and tough, and he's already Alaskan, and you know, this is home, and he runs up there sort of with his gravel voice and says, hey, give me a haircut like dad. I want to be bald. Make me bald like dad, right? Make me bald. And Judy's going, well, you know, what do you mean? You want it short? You know, No, no, no. Cut me a hole. Cut me a hole like dad. Come on. Make me like dad. And so as uh, sort of wonderfully humiliating as that is, uh, it, really, it really is an expression of love. And when you have, when you have six kids that sort of uh, bring you to the edge of yourself, it's good to remember the grace of God that they are to you. They're a blessing. They are what you enjoy. And they're a picture of grace to me. And so I really enjoy my children even when they say stuff like that. But we are, we're in Ezra chapter 9. Uh, this morning, and I would just invite you to turn there. We're talking about spiritual leadership again, and what I have found is that Ezra is a remarkable spiritual leader. I was going to start in Ezra as a lead-in to Nehemiah, and it turns out probably I've spent the majority of the time in Ezra, and then I'm going to sort of bring us quickly through Nehemiah in the month of July, and then we'll start something new as we lead into the fall. But uh, Ezra is a remarkable guy who, in Ezra chapter 9, comes to a place where he's got to bring people to the grace of God. In other words, he's got to confront sin, kind of like Moses coming down with the Ten Commandments way back earlier on when he saw the children of Israel worshiping the golden calf. There was a sort of line in the sand moment where Ezra had to go after the hearts of the people of God and try to bring them to a melted state. It's bringing people to grace. And let me just say this, as a spiritual leader, and we all are spiritual leaders in some form or fashion as believers, we are called and commissioned to bring people to grace, to bring people to a place where they know that they have a spiritual need, where we are throwing the lifeline of the gospel to them, and we're praying that God will open a person's heart to receive grace, the grace of the gospel. And that's all of our testimonies. We've all been brought to the end of ourselves and been brought to an encounter with Jesus Christ and been recipients of the great gospel, the only true gospel, and that is the gospel of grace. As I was thinking about what we're about to look into in Ezra 9, I was reminded of something that's going on at one of the Christian colleges that really is an example of what's hitting our culture these days. Biola, which is the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, a Christian school down there, it's been in the newspaper this week, and some of you have probably read up on the fact that there's sort of an undercurrent or an underground group that is anonymously surfacing as a gay and homosexual group at Biola. Now, what's 
sort of unsettling about that isn't that people are struggling with homosexuality. A lot of people struggle with homosexuality, with that sin, and we understand that. But what's unsettling about it is that people are taking stands and positions in terms of policy and in terms of sort of the, the government of our age, our culture, and they're sort of hiding behind policies. And even today, sadly, as our president has come out this month and has said, look, he's endorsing same-sex marriage, and we shouldn't treat it any differently than, really, biblical marriage, which is one man to one woman in union. And at Biola, you have um, a conversation that's going on where this group is saying, look, we're afraid to come out and talk to people who are the leadership of Biola because we'll be expelled from school, and so we're going to stay anonymous and at the same time, we're going to accuse the leadership of not wanting to interact with us. And it sort of puts the leadership in a hard situation because they're saying, look, we want to address your spiritual needs, but we have to hold true to our standard, which says that sex outside of a relationship that's a marriage union between a man and a woman is wrong. And if that's ongoing and unrepented of, then yeah, you will be expelled. So that's sort of the situation in Biola these days, and we need to pray about it. Let me say this. I'm not upset, first and foremost, about injustices at a Christian college. I was a, um, a resident director at the Master's College in Southern California, so I know what that looks like to lead spiritually with policies and procedures in a Christian community. We know what's that, what that's like here with our Grace Christian School ministry. However, my deeper concern and my deepest concern is for us to see as a church that we possess the only solution to people's lives and hearts when people are ensnared in sins such as immorality and even homosexuality. We're it. I mean, it's one thing to get sort of mad at certain things that are coming out in our culture or mad at governing officials or mad at things that are splashed in our newspaper. I understand holy indignation. But don't stop there. It's up to us, you and me, as believers, blood-bought citizens of the kingdom, with the only transforming message that changes hearts to be willing to throw lifelines and try to get people to grace. No matter where they are, in a, in a Christian college and in a church, you basically have three categories of people. You have people who are in out-and-out rebellion. Then you have people who are religious who are holier than thou, who they're not transformed yet by the gospel. They're holding on to rules and regulations or perhaps their parents' faith or even their denomination. They're religious people. And then you have a third category, and that is the redeemed. So you have people who are rebellious, religious, and then you have people who are redeemed. And all three categories need to be brought to grace, right? As the redeemed, don't we need the grace of the gospel every single day in our lives? We get hard-hearted in our own versions of rebellion, our own versions of religiosity or being religious or Pharisee-like, and we need our hearts to melt by the grace of the gospel, and we need to be able to extend as spiritual leaders the grace of the gospel for those who need it, and we all need it. And so I want us to learn this morning from Ezra, a spiritual leader in Ezra chapter 9, who shows us, by example, how to get people to grace, how to get people to melt. How do you do it? How do we get people 
to grace. Well, first of all, let me just say that as a lead-in in Ezra 9, at this point, Ezra, as the spiritual leader, he's been in Jerusalem for the first time as a spiritual leader who's come down from Babylon, and he's been preaching the word of God. In Ezra chapter 7 and 8, we learned that Ezra was a man of the Bible. He was a man of the book. He was noted as a scribe who was a man of the word. So he had, he had mastery over the scripture. And so what he would have been doing for four and a half months is preaching the word of God. He had some governing official stuff to do for the king of Persia. But primarily, I assume he was preaching because what happened is, is that as the preaching was happening, the sin began to surface. And that's what happens. Preaching causes sin to surface. Hard preaching softens hard hearts. It opens people up in their consciences. And in verse 1 of Ezra 9, it shows that there are officials... People who are lower-level officials who basically out the Levites and the priests who were the spiritual leaders of this temple worship movement that had re-begun down in Jerusalem. The officials outed the Levites and the priests and basically said, listen, these spiritual leaders are intermarrying with pagans. That's what's going on. Let me read verses 1 and 2. After these things had been done, speaking of temple worship, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And this faithlessness, the hand of the officials, the chief men, has been foremost. What we have here is we have the top spiritual leaders blowing it and sinning before God's holy race. The issue is that they're intermarrying or mixing with pagans. Now, let me just say this. In the Old Testament, there's no problem with a Jew marrying someone from a different culture, ethnicity, or background, as long as that person from the other culture has repented of the paganism and has come to believe in the one true God. That's the message of the Old Testament. That's the message of Ruth. Ruth, as a Moabitess woman, converted. And in her conversion, she married Boaz and said, let your people be my people, let your God be my God. She became a follower. No problem there. Joseph's wife in the Old Testament was from a different culture, from a different ethnicity. Moses' wife, Zipporah, from a different culture. That's not at root what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the sin of marrying someone who is an unbeliever. Now, I know right off the bat there are many of you who are married to unbelievers or possibly married to unbelievers. Some of you uh, found yourself as an unbeliever marrying somebody, then you become a believer, and then you find yourself married to an unbeliever. 
And the Bible in 1 Corinthians 7 says, try to stay in that marriage and be an example and a witness to your spouse. There is a calling to evangelize your spouse with your life primarily and sometimes your words and testimony to evangelize your unbelieving spouse. I know many of you in the church find yourself in that situation. And it's a difficult situation, but God gives the grace to be in that situation and endure through it. But it's hard. And it's hard because you find yourself unequally yoked where you have two different sort of appetites going on at the same time. As a believer, you want to be with this family of God. You want to enjoy yourself in fellowship. And perhaps your unbelieving spouse is fighting you in that lifestyle and it makes it difficult for you and I I understand that but the reason God wants us to marry in the Lord is because as Ephesians 5 puts it the two become one flesh and to become one flesh means that not just you come together physically but it's a physical emotional and spiritual union that you are bound together in in a marriage In essence, when you become one flesh, it's like your life starts over again. You were deeply influenced, as you know, by your parents. Perhaps even other nationalities understand that more than Americans. But people are deeply influenced by their parents, their parents' personalities and appetites, etc. But when you get married, it's like it should start over again, and you begin to meld in your personalities together that's how it was for me I mean I'm a southerner from Virginia and I married a Yankee from upstate New York I say y'all she says you guys I find myself saying you guys and she says y'all and bada boom bada bing we're one flesh we're 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 together in our personalities and it's a beautiful thing in marriage to connect in that way and influence each other in that way that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, the Bible instructs believers to marry in the Lord. Uh, because what happens is when you marry someone who is an unbeliever, there is a competing set of appetites. Remember the story of Solomon, David's son, as king, who was influenced by the queen of Sheba in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Kings chapter 10. By 1 Kings chapter 11, you find that Solomon married people from other cultures. He had several hundred wives and concubines from pagan surrounding nations. And that caused his heart to stray away from the true God and go after foreign gods. That's what happened to Solomon. And the same thing happens to us. The Bible says bad company corrupts good morals. So we have to guard our hearts in ways, even with our unbelieving spouse at times, to to guard ourselves in holiness for what the Lord wants for us in our lives. And so, again, what Ezra finds here is that the Jews were intermarrying. They were mixing, it says in verse 2, mixing themselves and making the race unholy. It was not at primary level a ethnic thing. It was at primary level a heart issue where hearts were straying from the Lord. There's a warning in Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 7 not to do this because you want your children and your grandchildren to be preserved in the faith. And that's what is going wrong in this situation. Pretty hard-hearted situation. 
It's like leading people back to the grace of God that are caught up in this kind of overt rebellion. How do you do it? Let's look at how Ezra does it. And it's really the way that we should do it for ourselves and for other people. It's two steps. How do you melt the heart? How do you get people to grace? You have to first of all see what you genuinely deserve. That's number one. You got to either get people to see what they genuinely deserve or you got to bring yourself back to grace by seeing what you genuinely deserve. And typically what you got to do is you got to start with the holiness of God and the law of God and see that you deserve eternal wrath and punishment. But look how Ezra does this. He, he does it in such a passionate and personal way. Verse 3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. If you're taking notes, I'm going to kind of head each of these um, succeeding verses with a topic um, beginning um, with the letter P. Forgive me for the alliteration, but, you know, we'll go with it from that. Um, first of all, Ezra approached this situation in a personal way. A personal way. In other words, he enjoined himself into the sins of the culture. Not committing the sins, but he enjoined himself into the grief and the guilt of those sins without saying that he committed them. How did he do that? Well, he ripped his own garment he pulled out his own hair. He ripped out his own beard, and he sat appalled. You know, so often it's important for us when we're confronting someone and trying to get somebody to grace, it's important here, listen to this, to go to that person empathetically and say, you know what, we're going to talk about something that I know is a, a sin from God's word, but, but by the grace of God, I would be ensnared in the same sins. And by the way, let me tell you my story. I used to be. The Bible says all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. That was me before I found grace. And so I'm not coming from a position where I'm looking down upon you. I'm coming to serve you and say that I too am a sinner and I have met Jesus Christ, and I want to show you how you can be set free from your sins. So you come as a fellow beggar of bread, a fellow um, recipient of grace as you meet somebody where they are. And that's exactly what Ezra was doing. Now, he had a different personality, perhaps, than Nehemiah. If we were to look at Nehemiah 13.25, when Nehemiah confronted this same sin later on to the Jews, you know what he did? He didn't rip out his own hair. I would probably take the Nehemiah approach with where I am. He, he ripped out, Nehemiah 13.25, he ripped out the offender's hair. He was incensed. He was angry by the sin. But he was emotionally involving himself corporately with the sin issue. I think it's so important for us as we see sin that's going on, we're, we're not to just get you know numb to it or used to it. We're to enter into the grief of it. We're to be having a holy indignation about it, but then empathetically trying to bring grace to people because we have been saved by this same grace. So there's a personal dimension. And then verse 4, there's a practical dimension. Look at this. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening Sacrifice. Notice that word trembled at 
the words of the God of Israel. Isaiah chapter 66 verse 2 says, To this one I will look, those who tremble at my word. The idea of trembling. There's a whole denomination called Quakers that, that, that as a practice in general, they, they quake or they tremble before God. It's the idea of there being a physical dimension to grief. When you really are sad about sin, there is a physical or a visceral response to that sin. If you're just numb to something that's going on, or let's say you're confronting your your rebellious teenage daughter or son, if you're just sitting there as a stoic confronter, they're not going to take you very seriously. There needs to be um, some emotional entering into the situation. It's personal. It's practical. There were um, these parents uh, who were spiritual leaders at a Bible institute, and their daughter was found out to be involved in smoking marijuana. And these parents, what they did, and I commend them for this, they took their teenage daughter away for a weekend. And they checked into a hotel and they basically got on their knees and surrounded her with love and prayer and tears and and begged her to talk openly about why she's doing that. And they confessed their own sins as parents to say, listen, I know we've failed you. We've hurt you. We've not been there for you. And we want to be there for you now. And they entered into the sadness of the sin and she repented. And she grew from that. I remember confronting a guy who was a worship leader of mine at a college group that I was the leader of. And he was involved in some sexual immorality. And he began to tell me about it, but there were no tears. He was just telling me about it. Like, I'm just going to check this off. And am I okay to still do what I'm doing? And it was sort of a functional conversation. And as I thought about what he was involved in and how he was sinning against the holiness of God, I... I wasn't condemning him, but I was surprised that he wasn't melting before me with tears because of what he had done. That's the tears of repentance. It's so important for there to be a reaction to the sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about the Corinthians. When they repented of immorality, there was a vindication, a righting of wrong, a, a zeal, a holy indignation against the sin. So important to see. Even in your own life, you say, I don't know if I've repented of something. Well, it's important to confess it openly to the Lord and to think about the offense that you've done against the Holy God. And so you realize that you can't make it right in your own strength, but then there's grace, and that's what melts your heart. That's 2 Corinthians 7. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher from the UK last century, said that for there to be genuine repentance... Your repentance needs to be as notorious as your sin. Do you hear that? It's the idea that there needs to be a response commensurate to your sin. I think that's why um, we see next that not only did Ezra to enter into the confrontation on a personal level, a practical level, but he also brought it public. He brought it public. Look at verse In verse 4, there were people gathering around with Ezra. They were trembling with Ezra over this sin. He was beginning to create an influence. And so during the evening sacrifice, which in the Jewish calendar or or day would be 3 p.m., during this evening sacrifice, 
He says, I arose from my fasting and my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. So his posture was bowed low. Now again, he was not committing the sin, but he was interceding on behalf of people. I mean, do you get fired up for people that need grace? That's what he was doing. He was putting himself out there in public display saying, God, help these people. He was kneeling down before the Lord God. And I think that there needs to be some passion in our hearts and our lives for people. If we're going to move people in their hearts, we need to be moved first by the grace of God, right? That's what he was doing. He was putting himself out there in public display. Look at his prayer in verse, beginning at verse 6. It says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and, I, and blush to lift my face to you, my God. Stop there. He, he's saying, look, I'm blushing. Literally, the Hebrew says that he, he wouldn't lift his head because his face was blushing. He was, he was enjoining himself into the sins of the people and saying, what went wrong, even in my own leadership, that these people are involved in sin in this way? Do you remember the story from Jesus in Luke 18 where you have the Pharisee who's praying his prayers about how self-righteous and wonderful he is compared to the tax gatherer who is unwilling to lift his head to the Lord and beating his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Perhaps our evangelism and our leadership trying to lead people to grace, our, our relationships to the ones we love where we're trying to connect with people is stunted because we aren't getting there first in our own hearts and our own lives. It takes this kind of contrition, this kind of passion, this kind of genuine repentance in our own lives before our message can be effectively conveyed to those who need grace. Even like a Biola student. Again, it would be easy to look at them and say, man, you know, who do they think they are? And here they are all splashed around in the news and, you know, they're giving a bad name to Biola. No, no, no. I look at that as a challenge to go, you know what? I hope that I can help Christians reach those people or we can reach those people because those people need grace and we can help them because they've been made in the image of God. And the only message that will help those people and anyone who's rebellious is the gospel. It's up to us really is. We can follow a pattern like this. Well, first of all, Ezra was personal about his confrontation, practical, and he was public, verse 5. And then he was, verse 6, proportioned in his message. Now, what do I mean by that? Look at verse 6 again. He says, For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Do you know how you get to grace you get to grace by starting with the holiness of God Ezra was saying listen God is holy and if we sort of look at God's holiness his holy otherness his separation his perfection and we begin to mount up our sins we just see this huge chasm between who we are and between and between who God is he's holy and we are not 1 Peter 1.16 says to the church, be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Um, Matthew chapter 5 verse 48 is where Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the standard is there. And it's important for us to first melt 
beneath that standard and see that our sins have stacked up against the holiness of God. There's a proportionate um, sort of measuring stick that you have to use when you want your heart to soften before the Lord. And then lastly in verse 7, to see what you deserve, you have to see the pattern of sin in your life. And that's what Ezra does, documenting how Ezra and the people of God have sinned over and over and over again, bringing judgment on the nation of Israel. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt and for our iniquities. We, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame, as it is today. What he's saying is that even back a millennia ago, even back when there was the times of first coming into the promised land, where Joshua led the people of Israel into the promised land, there has been sin and judgment even from the beginning. You know, Israel has not been a free ruling nation until 1948. It didn't gain its full freedom until just recently. I was telling my children about that, and they were saying, Really? What does that mean for the nation of Israel? What does that mean for the times that we live in today? It's kind of astonishing to think about it. But Persia, it had rule over Israel, God's chosen nation back then. And then you have Alexander the Great. You have the Romans that were, had tyranny over the nation of Israel during the times of Jesus Christ, right? You have the Arabs. You have the Syrians. You have different ones who have who have dominated this nation. You have even um, the British have had rule and tyranny over Israel. Not till 1948 has it been a free entity, a free country. So we've seen so far what we deserve. You have to, you have to look at what you deserve, first of all, before you can get to grace. Secondly, see what you've been given. You've got to see what you've been given. You've got to see what you have. And Ezra does this with five different pictures in two verses. It's so important to understand how grace is depicted here. Look at verse 8. It says, but, this is part of his prayer, but now for a brief moment, favor, you can insert the word grace there, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place. Stop right there. First of all, we're talking about favor. It's in this brief moment of time. It's, it's Ezra saying, look, we've, in the last 80 years, we've been restored out of exile, down to rebuild our temple. That's what's going on in redemptive history here. We've been given a shot, and it's a brief moment of time where the favor of God has been splashed upon us. It begins with a picture. He says, to leave us, a remnant. That's the first picture. The first picture is that God's chosen holy people, whether Jews or uh, believing Jews or new covenant believers today, which is Jew and Gentile, we are called a remnant. We're called a holy people, a chosen people. A remnant is a piece of fabric, a ripped piece of fabric. It's a picture of a sort of a, a you know, an, kind of an undeserving piece of cloth that that is being loved that's who we are we're just a piece of ripped cloth that god has chosen because of his grace 
to love. Do you realize that? It's so important for us to understand that we've been picked out of the fire. We've been picked out of the fray of humanity. There are many people on the wide road that leads to destruction, and there are a few on the narrow road that leads to life. And we are part of that few. We are the strangers, the aliens, we're the exiles, we're the holy people of God. Not because we deserve it. Does anyone here think they deserve grace? If you think that, you don't understand grace. Grace is what we do not deserve, what we have not earned, what we've flown in the face of, and God has given to you anyway. We have grace in the gospel, and we're saved, and we're his people. We're, we're his friends. We're the ones that he decided to lift up and wash clean by the death of Jesus Christ. We're saved by grace. That's what it means to be this remnant. Secondly, look at verse 8 again. To give us a secure hold. That is the same word for tent peg or a nail. And it's literally the picture of being nailed, look at this, within his holy place. It's like you've been nailed to the wall of the sanctuary of the church is the picture. Do you realize that you stand in grace and there was nothing you did to earn grace, but God has secured you in grace like a nail hammered or a, a bit drilled into the wall. You've been sort of screwed in to the wall, secure in grace. That's the picture here that he's saying we have. We are secure in grace. Justification is the doctrine from Romans chapter 8 where we have been declared righteous. We, have, we did nothing to earn grace, but it's like we've been given the robe of righteousness that's been laid around us where nothing can change it. It's like the courtroom scene where the judge looks at you and says, your status forever, all through eternity, is not guilty and fully righteous because I'm viewing you through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a son or daughter in my kingdom forever. It's, it's a nailed-in thing. Our sins have been nailed to the cross, so we are nailed into the sanctuary of God forever. We're justified. And then thirdly, we are light in the Lord. Look at this. In verse 8 again, it says, Within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. Ephesians chapter 5 calls Christians children of light. Paul says you are light in the Lord. You were once walking in darkness and now you have light. It's regeneration by the Holy Spirit. We read it together in Titus chapter 3. We've been washed by the renewing of regeneration in the Holy Spirit. Our eyes have been brightened. He's the lifter of our countenance. He shines his light upon our souls, and we see Jesus in a real and genuine way. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is found in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1, the day has dawned in our hearts. Do you recognize the privilege that you have in grace? This is what should melt you, where you say, you know what? I may not like everything that's going on in my life. I might be, quote-unquote, down on my luck right now, but I have Jesus, and I know him personally, and my personal relationship with Christ is enough. It's more than enough. Is that the case? Is that, is that how you feel in your heart? Is that the case you make for yourself as a Christian, that Jesus is enough? 
He's your Lord. He's your Savior. And God has given you the light of faith to see that. I hope so. That is grace. And then... The next picture here, we've seen the idea of a remnant being a nail, having light. And then number four, having breath, having breath. Verse 9 again. It's the idea of being revived. Verse 9. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but, is, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God. As an unbeliever, you were striving in your sin. You were trying to prop yourself up in your own strength. But as a believer, we are brought to spiritual life, and we are living the Christian life by grace, and we're revived. You know, if you feel unrevived now as a believer, can I just give you some counsel? Go to Psalm 119, and it's the longest chapter in the Bible, but it is a beautiful chapter that mentions being spiritually revived 31 times. It's a constant theme through that chapter of verses. I think it's 163 verses long. 31 times the word revive is used. It's very important for us to recognize that we've been resuscitated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you exhausted? You might be physically exhausted, but you know what? What's even worse is to be spiritually drained. And by God's grace... You might be drained, but you have the source of life to be strengthened in the inner man and to be revived again. That's what he's talking about here. And then lastly, the last word picture is one of protection or a wall of protection. It says in verse 9, again, to grant us some reviving, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. It was the grace of protection. It's a picture of a wall, like a wall around the sheepfold or a, a wall around a vineyard. The walls of Jerusalem um, had not been rebuilt yet. Nehemiah had not completed that task yet. What, what Ezra is talking about is the protection that comes by the grace of God's mighty protection. There, remember the different Persian kings, Cyrus, Xerxes, Darius, Artaxerxes, these are kings that could have just wiped out Jerusalem on a whim. And yet Ezra is saying, look, we've been protected. And spiritually, we understand that protection, do we not? Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. If we were to look at Romans 8 right now, verse 30, it talks about how God foreknew us. And he predestined us, and he called us, and he justified us, and then ultimately he will glorify us. That is called the unbreakable chain of salvation. That is the wall of protection that surrounds our standing in grace. And that is what you need to remind yourself of when you need to melt before God. That's what these pictures are meant to to do in so many other pictures in the scripture. The idea of, of having a wall around us, a wall of protection, is a beautiful picture of grace. You know, I was at the zoo yesterday, and I had, wow, I think I had eight children with me. Now, I only have six, but I had a couple friends as well, and we survived. You know, there's a lot of things that could go wrong at a zoo, but praise the Lord for walls of protection that keep the animals away from us. I went up towards the wolves, and all of a sudden the, uh, 
the zookeeper with the food truck went by and the wolves all came to life and you know they were howling and running around it was eerie boy but I was thankful for that wall of protection and as we stand in grace we have the wall of protection where we are protected from ourselves we're protected from our own sin against God because of grace and God protects us and our standing in grace where nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus we're protected we were called justified and we were going to be glorified and nothing can break that chain of salvation that God has brought to us in grace you know there's a temptation though I want to just bring this up Romans chapter 6 verse 1 you may turn there in your Bibles Romans is a book of the Bible that is all about grace and as you hear about grace I think it's easy sometimes to presume upon God's grace to yawn at God's grace and I want to call all of us not to do that because to melt before God's grace is to realize that we should not take the grace of God for granted right that's very important look at Romans chapter 6 verse 1 what shall we say then are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's a very important question. How in the world can we fly in the face of grace as if it means nothing to us? We've got to come back to grace and say, Praise God that you saved me in spite of me and that you have promised me salvation in glory. That's where Ezra brought these people to. Look at Ezra 9, verse 13. It's the same concept as Romans 6. It's in Ezra's words. He says, After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us. Look at this. You've punished us less than our iniquities deserved. That's a key phrase. That's the phrase that popped off the pages of Scripture at me this week. Do you feel that phrase in your life? You've been punished less than you deserve. He goes on to talk about the fact that, look, I don't even know if we as God's remnant are going to make it through this. He could, he could bless his covenant blessing on other Jews, on other Israelites that have been scattered abroad. And we don't deserve this salvation. When you enter into grace with that mindset, saying, man, I deserve hell, but you've given me grace in spite of my sinfulness, that's when you experience the joy of your salvation. And when you're able to present those factors to people who are in rebellion or who are caught up in religion, that's what melts the heart of stone and makes it soft and supple and receptive to grace. Very important to be able to do that in your own life and in the lives of others. And I'm just going to give it away. Chapter 10, verse 1, guess what? It worked. They repented. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. They repented. How do we make this practical? How do we reach the religious person or the rebellious person or the person who's redeemed but is living rebelliously or in religion? Well, number one, you've got to start with the holiness of God. 
you've never read a book on the holiness of God, you should do that. You should look at all the passages in the Bible about God's holiness and get a taste of who he is and how he's different than we are. Because starting there brings a different mindset on sin issues. Secondly, be willing to use the Bible to define sin. I don't have a, any particular problem with calling a sin a struggle or a habit or an addiction or something that someone has, you know, been victimized by where people have been violated before by sinners and how that causes emotional damage in the life of a person. I understand that kind of language, that kind of understanding of sin, but it's so important for us to not stop there and to, and to say, listen, I'm going to call that particular sin what the Bible calls it, immorality, impurity, something that's vile. I mean, there is a, a sense in which verse 11 of chapter 9, where Ezra says, it is a land that is impure. It's the idea that, that sewage had, had been piped into Israel at that point, into Jerusalem. There was a sewage of sin throughout the land. And you've got to come to terms with the fact that, that when people violate God's law, you have to call it what it is so that people can see it. Immorality, homosexuality, impurity, pornography. I mean, these are Bible words that are sins that we have to call on the carpet. Why? Not because we want to be bombastic or hurtful to people, but because we want people to see that they have a need for grace. And when you start with the holiness of God and you begin to call a spade a spade with Scripture, then a person says, well, what hope do I have? Only one hope. It's the grace of the gospel. And that's when people melt or harden up and leave. Number three, show how our sin and guilt mean that we all deserve God's punishment apart from grace. Number three is important. That perhaps is, should be our number one in the takeaway points. We have to enter into the sin. We've got to say, listen, it's our sin we're talking about. I mean, maybe I haven't done everything that everyone else has done, but it's all there in seed form. And but by the grace of God, there go I. And when you bring that atmosphere to the table, now we're talking, right? Now there's a conversation. Now there's an opportunity, an entry point into the heart and life of someone that needs grace. Number four, tell your personal story of how you came to grace. Do you tell your testimony to people? You know, a lot of people won't necessarily enter into a Bible study with you, and they don't know Bible jargon and Bible terms, and I understand that. But everybody, most often, will listen to your story. And oftentimes, people want to hear about your story. Even if they say, well, that's good for you, but I have my own story, the most effective tool you have in your toolbox for evangelizing someone else is to tell them how you met Jesus Christ and you know him personally. Now, I love doctrine and theology, but, you know, I, I don't, I'm not talking about getting into all kinds of theological terms. I'm talking about telling other people that you love Jesus and what happened to you, how you used to live and how, look, Jesus entered into my life and he changed me. He transformed me and this is where I was. This is what happened. This was the season of life. This is why I'm committed to Christ as my Lord because I love him and know him and you can know him too. If you can do that, you can evangelize. You 
have what it takes. I wrote it up there. You have what it takes to lead someone to grace because you can tell them your story. Please do that. People need grace, and it is up to us as God's missionaries to give grace in Anchorage. You know, depression is believing that you deserve more than you have. A lot of people will fall prey to that sin. We all do. Joy is seeing what you truly deserve, but what God has given you anyway. Depression is believing that your relationship with Christ is not enough, and joy, the joy of the Holy Spirit and your mission and message comes to life when you're able to proclaim that Jesus is enough, and he's more than enough, and he's the pearl of great price. He's the treasure in your heart that you love and live for every single day. That's how you can bring people to grace with that kind of joy and that kind of message. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth, your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for grace that has shed abroad in our hearts. Lord, we know the love of Jesus Christ is real, powerful, and potent for us. I pray that we would access grace every single day. I pray that we would be bold and be willing to put ourselves out there and call people to this grace that they need. Lord, let us not be afraid to share our stories. Just like Ezra did, let's put ourselves out there personally, practically, publicly, proportionately. Let us do it powerfully. Let us be willing to share the history of sin and then sin's remedy, which comes through the gospel. Lord, there are many people, I'm sure, that are laid upon our hearts right now that need grace. Maybe family members, maybe children, maybe um, friendships, long-standing friendships, and we need to be bold and, and be willing to receive from you the, the prick in our conscience that you put there by the Holy Spirit for us to actually commit to share our story to someone who needs Christ. Thank you, God, for your redeeming work. In Jesus' name, amen.